Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki, and it's my pleasure and honor to introduce you to our phenomenal robotics and AI community in Australia. I hope you're well wherever you are in the world and um, having an absolutely great day. In the coming weeks, I will be acknowledging the premier principal and lead partners of the Women in AI 2023 Awards, which will be held on Friday, 16 June 23, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. These valued Women in AI Awards partners have been invited to nominate an up-and-coming inspirational woman within their organization, a rising star, to tell their story. Principal partner, Monash Data Futures Institute, has nominated Dr. Ellie Abde for our chat today. Ellie is a lecturer and director of the Robotics and Medicine and Interaction Laboratory, the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, Monash University. Ellie, welcome and really great to have you joining me today. Thank you very much, Nikki. It's my pleasure to be here. To our audience, I've actually had the pleasure of uh, meeting LA in person, so a couple of years ago at my office. So this is a double honor for me to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to the discussion. So before we talk about your very accomplished career and work to date, I'd like to take a step back. What motivated you to become a mechanical engineer? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it started really early on for me. If I think back, as a child, our, I always look forward to our mathematics sessions at primary school. Uh, thinking about math, the logical process of problem solving was always fascinating to me. And then later in the secondary school, I liked physics even more because I could see that it can apply uh, the principles of math in natural phenomena. So for, to me, engineering seemed like an obvious choice because it is where theory and practice meet to solve real life problems. And I would say that now that I think back many years on, I couldn't be happier with my choice. Tackling new problems and devising novel solutions are as exciting as ever. I love your, your clarity of thought and just knowing what you're going to do. You know, I've interviewed many women on this podcast and um, it's, it's a bit of a split split. Some of them are still going, I'm still not sure what I want to be when I grow up and they're highly accomplished women. And some women like yourself from a young age have just decided, listen, this is what I'm going to do and I'm doing it and I'm, I just love what I'm doing. So congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. I think I have been lucky that I was like in a family that had like a similar background. So I think that my father being an engineer has also been quite helpful. I could see the type of job that he was doing. So I had like a pretty clear um, view of what I will be doing if I become an engineer. So I had that role model from, from the childhood. You know, that's a really interesting observation. And I actually wanted to ask you, do you have anyone in your family? Because I think um, you know, there's a saying, you can't be what you can't see. And I think for a lot of women that break out of the mold and actually go on to become engineers, um, it, it's quite daunting. And I, maybe, you know, you could touch on it, you know, students that come into the uni that aren't from that sort of background and just how they navigate this. Yes, exactly. And when um, I have some chats with students, for example, at the open day at the university, 
one of the things that I notice is that if they have not seen it before, if no one, for example, from their family has entered the university, then they find it as a bigger challenge compared to someone else who has seen other people doing it and they have seen that it's not actually that big a deal and everyone can do it. So I think it's it's very important to have representatives. And if you don't have in your family, then I think it's the job of the society to, to provide that type of representation in other forms. I couldn't agree with you more. And it sort of touches on the the, the um, one of my passionate um, things that I believe in is that from a very young age, you know, like even kindergarten, you actually have, have to on the walls, you have to have photos of men and women both doing diverse things, you know, um, male hairdressers, female engineers, you know, to just break the stereotypes. Yes, 100%. And I think that we are moving in, in, the right, in the right direction. I see now like children's storybooks that are actually representing uh, female hero, heroines and um, like, uh, and like these cartoons that have these different representations compared to when I was a child. Yeah, yeah. listen, we, we're making progress. We are definitely. Tell us a little bit about your academic journey. You have a PhD in medical robotics, which you have a particular interest in. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I completed my PhD at EPFL in Switzerland in 2017 before joining Monash as a lecturer in the same year. And my research nowadays is mainly on human-robot collaboration. The aim is to make most out of the strengths of humans as mostly reliable decision makers in unpredictable environments on one hand, and robots as potentially accurate, powerful, and tireless agents on the other hand. With this combination, we can move towards safer and more productive procedures in a range of applications, including medicine, construction, and service. This contributes to addressing uh, the global challenge of shortage in workforce, because we can augment the capabilities of humans with automation, while limiting the risks of adverse labor conditions for human workers. So I think like this is something that is becoming more and more advantageous to the societies in Australia and along the world. Across the world, we have this aging population. So in contrast or unlike what some people think that our oh, robots are going to conquer our world and it's going to be scary, I view it in, from another perspective. And that is that robots are actually there to help us. And I think that the society at some point will, will reach a stage that we actually will need robots to be there to help us because we will not have enough humans to do the jobs. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, this this fear-based approach of looking at robots and um, you know what I deal with, you know, telepresence robots and things. And I often have to explain to people, look, these robots simply aren't as smart as you think they are at the moment. Um, of course, Of course, things can evolve as time goes by. So just thinking of the time when you started in, in this field, how do you think robotics has evolved during this period? Mm. Yeah, so I think like in robotics, the trend that I have increasingly observed is that we are moving beyond the applications where agents are like robots are giants, powerful agents that are caged away from humans 
and are solely used in predictable repetitive tasks in structured environments, such as the robots that are used in car manufacturing factories. Rather, the recent advancements in computing capacity, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, sensing, and also the user interfaces has brought robots into our lives like never before. Now we can see robots that are serving us food at restaurants, greet us in hotels, or assist us in airports. So in my view, this is how the future will look like. Robots that empower humans by working alongside them as KPLS systems. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I particularly think in the medical field where robots are, um, such as the Da Vinci robot, you know, even um, automated robot taking away waste in, in, in hospitals, you don't actually want humans doing that sort of dirty, dangerous work. Yes, exactly. So in medicine, uh, with, with the example that you brought up, for example, the Da Vinci robot, uh, just to keep the mind of people at ease, don't think that the robot is actually doing the surgery yeah. on you. Yeah. The robot is just replicating the movement of the surgeons and it's making those, those movements safer. For example, it filters out the tremors of the surgeon's head, it has if there are any. So um, the robot is making things better and more accurate. Maybe in the future, we will have a certain level of automation involved in those type of procedures. And I imagine that it will start with some of the repetitive tasks, for example, uh, the suturing tasks, because you need to like make stitches over and over again, and it's a repeatable task. But uh, as you mentioned, Nikki, robots are not as smart as people think they are. We still have a long way to go to that up until reaching that point. So for now, robots are really helpful. And for us not to reach that scary stage, uh, we still have a lot of time to think about how we want to regulate things to like uh, prevent robots to become more powerful than humans. Yeah, and I think it's, um, you know, it's an educational process, you know, chats like this, um, doing um, universities, doing um, open forum discussions where the public are allowed to come and look and, and experience robots and just learn about them. I think that's really valuable and important. Yes, exactly. I think like when you see a robot and you when you interact with it, it's like similar to many other unknown things that yeah. when you do not know about them, you might be uh, scared. But when you actually interact, you you might actually like the concept as well. Yeah. So as mentioned, you're the director of robotics and medicine and interaction laboratory. It's quite a mouthful that what does the laboratory do? You're like, what is a typical day for you? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I think if I want to go through the whole day, it will take a lot of time. So I will just put it into a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. I will be exhausted. <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I am leading a team of PhD students, uh, undergrad students and research assistants that work on research questions in the field of human-robot interaction. And our aim is to push the boundaries of knowledge in this field. There are many brainstorming meetings that we hold with collaborators ac across the board. Uh, I have a number of collaborators uh, who are in hospitals in Melbourne for working on uh, medical robotics, and then also other research institutes uh, that, I, that I work with. And then in these meetings, we come up with uh, the challenges that they face and the type of solutions that might be helpful for them. 
And then from that point on, we take that challenge in into the lab, and then we think about, okay, how we can come up with solutions. And once a solution is implemented, it's tested and reiterated until the desired outcome is achieved. So we use like mathematical modeling, physical principles, and experimental validation every day in the lab. And then the results are disseminated in scientific conferences and journal publications. So it means that we spend also quite a bit of time in, in writing and to like have a very uh, clear representation of the work that has been done and also to present the challenges that have faced along the way because sometimes reporting those challenges can be helpful for other researchers. Your day sounds packed, Elie, I, but I can see um, and my audience, you can't see her face, but it's it's lighting up as she's talking about her work. So she obviously loves her work. It's always important when you talk about your work and your eyes fire up and you've got the smile. Otherwise, I'm like, listen, I don't think you're in the right job. <laughs> so now you've been a lecturer at Monash University for just over five years. What makes it unique about working at Monash and developing the next generation of engineers? Yeah, um, Monash is a great place, both in size and the quality of research and innovation it offers. Uh, I have had the opportunity to work with various institutes within Monash and teach robotics and mechatronics units to some of the brightest students in the country. Monash is investing in major strategic initiatives and establishing interdisciplinary institutes such as the Monash Data Future Institute, which is enabling engineers to work closely with colleagues um, in other areas, such as social sciences, design, and medicine. Monash is a big university. We have like every area of research that you can think of, and that's great to be in this environment as a researcher, because this brings valuable opportunities for multidisciplinary research and cross-field exchange of knowledge which is very helpful for coming up with new ideas and also see the flaws in our own research. For example, in my job as an engineer, um, as engineers in general, we like having complicated solutions and a lot of sensors and actuators and complicated designs. But then in practice, when I talk to surgeons, they want something very simple that works. And it's a very interesting perspective and we must have this conversation otherwise we will never know i think it's just because all engineers like you said you love a challenge and your brains are just wired to go what problem can i fix and how convoluted can this be so <laughs> i think this is just an engineering thing so as you mentioned working with doctors to say hey listen we possibly don't need that many gadgets or that many things sticking out there like it's in an environment where it can break a break or something can go so um, i imagine for engineers this is just like it's a pig and mud situation you just go i just love these problems <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly and what is very interesting also is that sometimes having a simple solution is even more difficult compared to having a complicated one yeah you have to really nail in and go exactly i agree with you it's like um when someone says to describe your job in two minutes, if you're struggling to do that, then A, you don't know what your job is or you need to go back and really think about the language you need to use. Yeah, yes, exactly. Like, um, so, yeah, putting things simple is, is, is a challenge. Yeah, it, it, if you, um, it reminds me of uh, 
Gary Plyer, that it's a, a South African golfer, just because I know him, and he he was a world champion, and he he said, and he made it look so simple, and he said, you know, the more I practice, the easier it looks, and this is for everything that we do in life. It's when you listen to very accomplished speaker and speakers, and I. I listen to a lot of women talk and I go, that just sounds so easy, like many, many hours of practice. And, you know, it's a lot of work behind the scenes to look smooth and accomplished. That's very true. So, which brings me to you've been recognized for your leadership and efforts for encouraging diversity and engineering, including being selected as a finalist for the Women's Agenda Award Emerging Leader in STEM in 2021. Congratulations. Most recently, you were named as one of Science and Technology Australia's superstar of STEM 2023. Absolutely huge recognition, Elahi. What does this mean for you and what does the year ahead hold for you? Thank you very much. Uh, it has been really a great honour to receive these recognitions. Uh, I believe that our society will become a better place for everyone with increased diversity and inclusion. And these recognitions bring me opportunities for more engagement with the community and reaching out to a wider audience. I really look forward to the year ahead because this is my first time, my first year as the superstar of STEM. And as a superstar, I will visit high school, uh, high schools across Victoria and engage with media to speak about the career paths in STEM and especially in engineering and especially for females and other represented groups in STEM. I hope to be able to play a role in our movement towards a more diverse workforce and encouraging more females to come into the field. Um, the females that I have seen in engineering, they have been among the brightest. So please don't hesitate. Um, you know, I, I had an interview last year um, and the professor said to me, look, the, the, the female engineering students are the brightest. Sorry, guys, I don't mean to say you're not bright as well, but like women, this is, if they go into the field, they're excellent. Like they, they really do very well. And um, I love the story of you going to high schools and talking to students. You know, when I was in high school many, many years ago, like we didn't have any of this, that women would come and go, you know, if you haven't thought about it, this is a potential career for you. And maybe not even if you go into engineering, but just the STEM background and be sensible about your subject choices that you're making and don't narrow things down for you. You know, I always, if I can give any student any advice for year 12, if you're not sure what you want to do, keep your subject, like um, your subject matter, broad at least keep maths in the equation in case you decide to go into a stem you know stem field and actually for all the ladies listening and girls and high school kids there's more money in the field so just you know just start there. <laughs> i think it's an <laughs> obvious just go that way you can always pivot into humanities if you want to but at least keep it open for you your choices yes exactly and i think that like going into high schools and maybe even primary schools goes back to that representation aspect that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, I imagine that especially in rural areas, many students might really not have seen a female in STEM. So just, just going there and showing them that, okay, these people exist, hopefully will be, will be, uh, will, will help them to make, make their own decision. 
no doubt. I have no doubt that it plays a role. So with the STEM imbalance in mind, what are the various ways that Monash is now encouraging women into engineering and STEM? Yeah, Monash is actually doing uh, a number of things in this domain. Monash has signed up to the Athena Swan principles in 2015 to encourage gender equity. And we have actually a committee, an Athena Swan committee at the university. And we also have a STEM Women Academic Network to support women in their career progression and connect with others across the university. Because sometimes it's uh, helpful for women at, at the university to be able to hear about the experience of their colleagues in different departments or in different faculties. So that network is for that. And we also have uh, the Women in STEM and Entrepreneurship Program for people outside of the university, specifically for year 10 female students in Victoria. And that is a program for uh, those students to learn about technology and uh, hopefully encourage them to get involved. And even entities within Monash have the same focus on initiatives to encourage women in STEM. With the case of the Monash Data Future Institute, for example, specifically in encouraging partner uh, participation and recognition of women in AI and data science, uh, they have been supporting the Women in AI Awards that you just mentioned at the beginning, Nikki. Uh, and it's an initiative across Australia and New Zealand since uh, the inaugural edition, MDFI has been a supporter and they are a principal partner this year. And apart from that, I personally uh, and my colleagues across uh, MDFI, we have been keenly involved in uh, bringing together the IEEE Women in Engineering International Leadership Summit last year, uh, which was organized in Australia for just the second time ever. And that event was another opportunity for women to network, uh, not only in the university, but also across the industry. So yeah, thinking about all of these initiatives, I believe that Monash is doing quite a lot in terms of encouraging further involvement of women into STEM. And the direction of what we do is clearly guided by Monash's Gender Equity Action Plan. Congratulations. I think it's a fantastic initiative and work that's being done. I, I firmly believe the more gender diverse we, we are represented in the workforce, the better for the workforce. And it's, um, it's supported in when you look at boards, when there's gender diversity there, um that the companies actually do better so it, it's a it's a contribution that the whole society is actually working together and doing better it's not men versus women or like it's if they're women it's against men it's nothing like that it's just that including a whole society with being gender diverse etc um it represents basically everyone so why wouldn't we be thinking this is a fair and equitable way forward Yes, exactly. So um, as you exactly mentioned, it's not about like competition or anything. It's just about the necessity of it. Mm -hmm. An example is that um, a few years ago, the car companies uh, on like came across a very interesting problem. They were using these uh, dummies, human dummies to test cars in the crashes. And then as it turned out, those dummies were average adult males. 
And obviously that was the case because all the engineers that were working on those problems were males. But then what it means is that, for example, the airbag of the car is designed for that dummy. And then in many car crashes, those airbags actually um, can uh, make injuries to females. So they came back and like rectified the problem by adding uh, dummies that represent females. And another example is, for example, the uh, screen of our mobiles. Sometimes you might find that they are too big and there is a demand for that in the market. But another reason is that usually they are tested by larger male hands. Uh, so th these are like just examples of why we need women as, as engineers and in more general in STEM, because we need that representation so that the products that come out are actually suitable for everyone. I heard about the um, the, the seatbelt one woman being injured and their ribs being broken because of where the seatbelt actually went across. Um, I didn't know about the mobile phone one though, and that's quite interesting because I sometimes do look at my phone. It could just be Elahi that my phone is in my hand too much and I should just put it down. But I do look at it and go, this is actually quite, it's, it's quite heavy and quite big. I could possibly have the option to go to a smaller phone. As I said, the option is probably just don't, just stay off your phone. <laughs> <laughs> this phone addiction we have. Let me see what I'm missing. So now your, your career and like congratulations because you, you've done so well. Um, do you have a mentor? Yeah, I have been actually very lucky to have the chance of working in some great teams and learn from some of the leaders in the field. Uh, during my PhD at EPFL, I, I learned how to lead with an open mind and compassion from my supervisors, Professor Hannes Bloiler and Dr. Mohamed Bouri. And later at Monash, I have had multiple role models, Professor Chris Davis, Professor Michael Wang and Professor Donna Coolidge. Uh, have, been, have provided me with valuable support by backing my risky research projects, I should say, <laughs> and helping me in identifying my professional priorities. So I would say having good mentors is definitely an asset. It could boost your career and help you steer away from avoidable mistakes. I would say if you can, have more than even one mentor, because you will get familiar with different perspectives and can find your own voice. So yeah, I would say having a mentor is, is, is really career changing if you can find a good one. I agree with you. And I think the thing with mentors as well, you know, sometimes you can have a formal relationship with them and sometimes it's an informal relationship. So informal is you just have a very quick chat, um, you know, whether they even acknowledge that they're mentor to you or not, it, it could be, it's just someone that you're looking up to and you're going, uh, you know, like I really value your input. A more formal relationship would be that it's actually, you know, it's a recognized mentor and mentoree relationship and you sit down and you have regular catch-ups. So, you know, for any of our audience out there thinking about uh, approaching someone to be your mentor, you know, my advice to you is really just go for it and ask people. I think generally speaking, um, most people will just be too flattered to be asked to be a mentor to someone. And um, yes, it's important. And I, I, I genuinely believe just ask, don't, don't sit there and then miss the boat, you know, because I think 
I think especially for women, sometimes we're a little bit hesitant in asking when we think something could be of value just because you think, oh, like, oh, you know, how's that going to be seen? Yeah, exactly. That's that's an excellent point that you just need to ask and you will be surprised by the response that you get. Um, many people will be will be more than happy to help you. So um, and in the worst case scenario, you won't lose anything. It's it, people might say that I'm busy and I can't help, but you have not lost anything. You have I, you have asked, but if you don't ask, you never know. Yes, that's a good advice. Ask and you shall receive. So any advice for anyone maybe particularly some women out there thinking of a career in stem and engineering what what do you say to them la uh i would simply say if you like it go for it engineering offers such a wide range of career paths that you can really become anything you aspire to you can end up in a nine to five job in a large company in melbourne cbd or you can choose to become a fly-in, fly-out, a FIFO engineer in a mine in the outback. So you can work in almost any industry and make a positive contribution to the society. So just follow your passion and work hard, and the sky is the limits. Fantastic advice. Thank you, Ellie. One last question uh, before we close off. The Women in AI Awards, as you mentioned, is now in their third year and is now across the APAC region as well. What advice do you give to women or like on the, you know, they're sitting on the fence, they're thinking, oh, am I good enough to apply for this? Yeah, I think that as women, um, we sometimes uh, think about uh, and like judge ourselves a bit harshly sometimes. So I would say that. Uh, if, if you are in the field and if you like meet the eligibility criteria, give it a go. Uh, you, you might receive uh, a recognition that might come, come to you as a surprise. I know that it has been a surprise for, for me to receive recognitions, but um, it has definitely been worth it. And looking back, I think that I, sh I should have even applied for more opportunities and I have missed some of them. So, um, and if you apply and you don't get it, you are, you have still learned a lot of things in the process because just by putting together an application, you are uh, re reconsidering and reevaluating your own career, and that's always helpful in planning the next steps. That's fantastic advice. Thank you, Eli. Where can our audience uh, contact you if they have got any other questions or anything that they'd like to chat to you about? Sure, uh, they can find me on Monash website and my contact information is, is listed on my page uh, on the Monash website. Okay, fantastic. And are you on LinkedIn as well? Are you, is that a medium or are you not really that active there? Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn and um, Elohe Abdi and put Elohe Abdi and Monash and I think you will be able okay. to find both, me. Both, both places you can find Elohe. Eli, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Congratulations with uh, everything that you're doing, the work that you're doing. And I wish you an absolutely fantastic 2023 as a STEM um, ambassador. I think you're going to be so good and you're going to inspire so many people. And um, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Linky. It was a pleasure being here and uh, your questions made me to think again. And yeah, it was it was a very interesting discussion. Thank you.
Thank you. And to our audience out there, I hope you enjoyed our chat. Join us again next week and um, stay safe, be well, and have a great day. Mm -hmm.